Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Their names are few and far between. First, there was Helene Hathaway Robeson Britton. Then there was Joan Payson and Joan Crock. The most famous of them all has to be Marge Schott. Women who owned Major League Baseball franchises. But there was another, less known, Effa Manley. She owned the Newark Eagles of the Negro National League. And we'll take a look back at her time as the team's owner, the struggles she faced, and the one fact that so many people who have heard of Effa will be shocked to discover. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 116, Effa Manley. A truly remarkable woman who broke into a man's world as the owner of the Newark Eagles of the Negro National League. A woman whose background will surprise many. Tough, but caring. Shrewd, but fair. She was at the helm of one of the Negro League's most successful teams, and had it not been for the Homestead Grays. Her Newark Eagles might be as famous as the Grays or the Kansas City Monarchs. The Eagles only won the championship once, always coming up short to Cumberland Posey's Homestead Grays, one of the most successful teams in the history of the Negro Leagues. And... While Manley operated the Eagles with a very watchful eye, especially when it came to finances, she also operated the team knowing how important it was to be involved in its community, the community of Newark, for the players to be upstanding or pillars of the community. And she also dipped her toes in many other important issues of the day. But one of the most remarkable facts about her life and career was her upbringing 
and we're going to get into it all with James Overmeyer, author of the terrific book, Queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley and the Newark Eagles. This book, published by Roman and Littlefield, whom I'd like to thank for sending me a copy, details so much of Effa's life, including her interesting and surprising upbringing to her days as owner of the Eagles to what life was like after her days in the Negro Leagues had concluded. So, who was Effa Manley? Who in 2006 was the first woman elected to baseball's Hall of Fame in Cooperstown? Jim and I cover it all in this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. First, however, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a like on Apple Podcasts. A review would be great, too, or even a five-star rating. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Check out the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, or please visit SportsFH.com. There, I have more information on my guests, the forgotten heroes we talk about, archives to past shows, and it's also a great and quick place for you to get a sneak peek at the books my author guests have written and a quick way to support them by ordering their book. Also, you can always check out the calendar to see who I'm going to be speaking about in future episodes. If you have a comment, a question, or just want to send me an email and let me know how I'm doing, please do so at sportsfh.info at gmail.com. That's sportsfh.info at gmail.com. As always, thank you for your support. Okay, let's get into today's episode about Effa Manley with my guest, James Overmeyer. And now joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes is Jim Overmeyer. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled you were able to carve out some time for me. Hey, hey, I'm retired. I always have time to talk about baseball. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, um, my my first question to you, I think, at least for me, is the most obvious. What motivated you to write a book about Effa Manley? Well, I have my wife to thank for that, I mean, <laughs> among other things. Uh, I'm a member of uh, SABRE, the Society for American Baseball Research. And in the 80s, uh, I lived near Albany, New York, where there was a Ch- SABRE chapter. And we bid and got the uh, national convention in 1989 where you have to do a lot of planning and one of our our uh, offers was to take everybody load everybody on buses in albany and drive them to cooperstown which is only an hour and a half away and go to the hall of fame so the year the summer before we went down and met with hall of fame officials to plan the trip and my wife went along and I went to the meeting, which, of course, she wasn't interested in, and so she went <laughs> through the museum. 
and we're headed out of town, stopped at the at the only stoplight in Cooperstown, <laughs> at least at that time. And she said, what do you know about Effa Manley? And so I'm this big baseball expert, and I said, who? She said, well, <laughs> there's a Negro League exhibit in there, and she was an owner of a team, and she was for civil rights, and she was for good business practices, and you should write something about her. So I said, well, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll try a magazine article and see if I can sell it. So I, I, I started to do some reading and uh, a little bit of research. And then we had a convention the next summer. And I met a guy named Dick Clark, who was uh, one of the co-chairman of Sabres Negro Leagues Committee. And I said, um, introduced myself and said, do you know where you know, some good resources on the Newark Eagles and he points across the little park. We're all out in the park beside the Hall of Fame. You should talk to that guy over there, Larry Hogan. He's arranged for the Eagle business files to be donated to the Newark Public Library. Well, wow. Larry Hogan, who is who is a now uh, emeritus uh, professor of history in, in northern New Jersey and had found out that defying all odds, the files that Effa left behind when she left Newark in the 50s had been recovered from two filing cabinets by a fellow who had purchased her old house and was renovating it. And Larry got him to donate all those files to the public library. And I went down there and I met with the head of special collections and they were still, the only thing that had happened to the files, it had gotten a little damp sitting in the basement mm, for sure. 30 some years. And they had them on these big, long drying racks. And he's got all these papers a year at a time spread out on these racks. And I'm looking at them and I'm looking at them. Oh, you can't walk away from this stuff. I've never written a book before, but I guess I got to now. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. <laughs> eh, yeah. So that was that was uh, by gosh, 20, uh, over thirty years ago. How? Yes. How long did it take, and how difficult was it to fill the pages of your book and to find people to discuss Effa? Well, in, in those days, well, it was a lot of work, but it doesn't seem like a lot of work. It didn't seem like a lot of work at the time and really doesn't seem like it now. Of course, the Eagle, I mean, I would go down there and I got to be like best friends with the people in the New Jersey history room. And I'd say, I'm here for 1938. Okay. Say, so go downstairs. These these are now microfilmed and, uh -huh, uh -huh. and online and everything. You know, that, but that we're talking 1989, 19. I'm just bringing up the folders with the pieces of paper in them, and I'm folding them, running back and forth to the copy machine all day with getting change and everything. This is old time stuff. Mm, mm. Um, there are a lot of there were a lot of people still alive then who played for the Eagles knew uh, Mrs. Manley, knew a lot about Newark. Um, and sometimes I just go down and, and literally spend a whole day in a library. Sometimes I'd spend part of the day and then go out and do some interviews. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I interviewed Monty Irvin, who is a Newark Eagle, he's in the Hall of Fame. 
interviewed Max Manning, who was uh, an Eagle player for the longest time, and um, several others. I had the great fortune. I'm a former newspaper reporter myself. I kind of think that they they know things, and they're probably pretty accurate. I wound up interviewing four people who had been uh, newspaper people in, or radio people in Newark at the time. Mm-hmm. Jerry Eisenberg, who's the emeritus sports columnist for the sure. uh, New Jersey uh, Newark paper, and John Cunningham, who went into the history writing business and was sort of the unofficial uh, New Jersey state historian when he died. Connie Woodruff, who worked for the uh, uh, New Jersey Afro-American, which is a black paper. And Jocko Maxwell, who is uh, regarded as the first uh, black sports broadcaster in New York and New Jersey. So it wasn't it wasn't hard. If you ask around, it wasn't hard finding people. They all love to talk about all of this. So Mm. filling up the book was not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes the problem is, what do I leave out? Well, yes, I you know. Cunningham was an interesting guy. I mean, this guy, he probably wrote 40 books on New Jersey history before he passed on. Wow. And I had lunch with him, and we're, we're talking about that. We talk about Newark and all in the day and all of that. And then we're just kind of batting things back and forth. He says, so how are you coming with your book? I said, oh, I'm having a great time. I interviewed Monty Irvin. I didn't do this. I did that. He just looks at me across the table and says, you better start writing. I said, what? Otherwise, one of these days, they're going to say, there goes old man Overmeyer. He's writing a book on the Negro Leagues. (laughs) And I went right home and started writing. And every time I run into another person who wants to write a book and is kind of fiddling around with it, I tell him the John Cunningham story. Yeah, interesting. So so let's let's turn our attention to Effa. And um, what makes her such an important figure in baseball history? Well, I'd like to think that she's kind of gone This is gone through three phases, and this is all since she died, so it's not like she made these phases happen. When I wrote the book about her, she was an interesting, pretty important Negro League um, person, and she was an owner of one of the teams. They won one of the Negro World Series, and... Uh, you know, she did have her shape, place in the exhibit, a picture of her and caption in the exhibit in Cooperstown. And so that was important. And then in 2006, of course, she got elected to the Hall of Fame. And now she's a Hall of Famer. Well, that's pretty important. And the only yeah. woman in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And that's pretty important. But I think in the last few years, and I think the thing that has taken her up to a third, I think, higher level was when Kim Ang was hired as the general manager for the Miami Marlins. Now there's there's this, it's not a direct link, obviously, but there's this link. There was somebody, and since then we've had the Yankees have a minor league, a woman minor league um, manager. manager. Yeah. There are coaches, and, and you know, there, there have always been women in the background in organized baseball and marketing and legal legal affairs, public relations, but now we have them in the front office and in uniform. And, and EFA is now, 
well, where did this all start? Well, she's one of the people, uh, a dis- distinguished member of the little group that broke the gender line way back. And so now she's now she's at a third level. She's, mm. she, that's that's what's happened to her history and her reputation mm-hmm. since uh, since she passed on. You know, Jim, when you look at the title of your book, now uh, this is going to be a little controversial, I guess. Queen of the Negro Leagues, which, by the way, is a wonderful book. And once again, I'd like to thank your publisher, Roman and Littlefield, for sending me a copy. Um, When you look at the title of your book, you would think that Effa was not only one of the bigwigs of the Negro Leagues, but also an African-American. And while she was brought up in an African-American family and moved around such circles throughout her life, her skin color, her hair color would leave you to believe she was not of that heritage. Talk about that. Well, she she got read. I mean, Negro League, attention to the Negro Leagues, as did the Leagues themselves, died out in the 60s and, and just people... I mean, people who had been involved with them obviously cared about them, but nobody cared about those people mm. <laughs> or the history of them as ball players or executives or managers. Uh, a guy named Bob Peterson, who uh, a former daily newspaper man who went into the magazine and book writing business, wrote a book uh, published in 1970 called Only the Ball Was White, which he went out and tracked down, not not Effa, uh, unfortunately, but he tracked down a whole bunch of former players or their wives that the players had passed and interviewed them, and he wrote this book. And this kicked off a revival of interest in the Negro Leagues. Well, by then, by the mid to late 70s, Effa was one of the few executive still alive. She was a little younger than her husband, Abe. She's 15 years younger than her husband, Abe, who was the other co-owner of the team, and relatively that much younger than the others, and they had passed, and she was available. She got interviewed by, oh, several people. I have tapes or transcripts of three long interviews she did. By long, I mean two-plus hours. Mm. Um a lot of uh, she was living in Los Angeles, a media hotbed. A lot of Jim Murray, the sports columnist, and a lot of others came around to interview her, and she started telling this story. Uh, for the first time in any kind of remember, she would say, "Oh, you know, by the way, I'm white," and they would say, "Huh?" Mm. <laughs> or words to that effect. And this was at a time. Doing genealogical research, unless you were, you know, your family had all lived in one area or something, was pretty hard. You had to you travel around and look in old files and libraries and everything. And of course, these people were interested in her baseball stories. And I was, this this applies to me too. Around 1980, I have to say. Um, so we just accepted it. I mean, she said it. It must be true. Mm-hmm. Well. Um, we had a little group, an informal group, consisting of a few um, 
members of her family and you know in, in our generation and a woman named a uh, professor of history in the LA area named Amy Essington who goes spading around for stuff about up in Los Angeles when she can and me of course now you have all of this stuff online ancestry.com and newspapers uh, digitized and we've gotten somewhere and as I said in the last thing I wrote about Effa well, what she said is at least partly true and maybe more so, <laughs> more than partly. Her her mother told her this story when she was a kid. Hey, I'm 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 actually when Effa got criticized or approached or something. One of the stories is at school the principal admonished her for playing with the white kids. And she went home and told her mother that. And mother says, you go back and tell her you're just as white as she is. And this is why, because I'm white and my husband was black, but you are the product of an affair I had with a white businessman there in Philadelphia, where they grew up. And yeah, people believed it. I mean, she, it's clear from her interviews and every and letters and things that she admired her mother greatly and she took this all to heart. Well, her mother was at least partly white. Her Effa's maternal grandmother was absolutely Caucasian. We're not sure about the grandmother's father's identity. We have his name, Robert Ford in Washington, D.C., but that's you know, at least it wasn't John Smith, but it's not too easy to track down. Um, so, so, and as for the affair with a white businessman, well, um, there was a guy by a similar name in a similar social position or business position living in Philadelphia at the time. And um, John Brooks, um, Bertha's, Effa's mother's husband, was a, I guess you could say, a serial white-collar criminal who dealt in mortgage fraud <laughs> and was caught so many times um, that he spent three terms in jails or prisons. And in one of them, he may well have been incarcerated when Effa would have had to have been conceived. Hmm. So that's what we know. <laughs> hmm. And and beyond us lies a br brick walls and yawning chasms of missing information that we may <laughs> never be able to fill. But clearly, um, the story is partially true. Yeah, and, and I and I thought it was important that we address that right off the top. Oh, it's you know, as Effa has come has become more famous, if you will. Now, people look at it in different ways. I mean. I haven't really changed, you know, and it depends on who you are. Like I'm an older white guy and I say, I, I agree with the uh, late sports writer and sports broadcaster, Art Rust, uh, a black uh, sports guy in New York City who wrote a couple of books on a Negro Leagues and devoted a few pages to Effa and this mystery and said, well, I don't know, but she certainly did a lot for the race, so I'm mm -hmm. happy. <laughs> That's Absolutely. kind of where I'm at. Yep. Um, there's, she sure there's did. There's a, a young woman sports writer who did a column. She really admired, she's a young 
African-American woman sports writer. She really admired Effa, and she's very disappointed to find out that Effa might not be have been African-American, and I kind of respect that position, too. So but Effa, she, but, but Effa, Effa had a lot of uh, raised a lot of controversy when she was alive, and she's still at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But she sure did do a lot for the community, and you know, beginning in her youth, and you you do outline or talk about a lot of it in your book. But we'll never have enough time to talk all about it. So I want to really concentrate more on her time in baseball. And part of that has to start with her husband, Abe Manley, who you you mentioned just a short while ago. So how did they meet, and what was their relationship like? She says, and and again, I, I don't have any reason to doubt it, she was a baseball fan, they, and Abe was a big sports fan, particularly baseball. She says they met at the 1932 World Series uh, at Yankee Stadium. And um, in 1934, uh, they were no, in 33, they were married. They lived in Harlem. Abe Abe had been in um, the a big wheel in Camden, New Jersey, in the illegal numbers business, numbers gambling business, which sounds terrible and hmm. until you think that the numbers gambling is now known as the New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, whatever state lottery. So <laughs> it doesn't seem so sinful now. And, and he got out of that. Uh, there was uh, the, the white gangsters were starting to move in uh, you know, on the black guys in Camden as they did in New York and other places. So he cashed out, took his money, went to Harlem. And they're sitting around one day, I think 34, and he's saying, you know, I'm a big fan of this Negro League that started in 1933, this National League, but they really don't run their business very well. I'm thinking of getting involved. Well, 1935, there are the Brooklyn Eagles. They they formed a team. They got a franchise, and they first, they played their first season in Brooklyn, which seemed like at Ebbets Field, which seemed like a good idea, but wasn't for a couple reasons. Um, Ebbets Field is pretty far from you know what, what was still already the black population base in Harlem. Kind of a long ride to go to the ball game, and there was a. Brooklyn was a real hotbed of really good semi-pro baseball, which played on weekends when the Eagles were trying to draw a big crowd to Ebbets Field. So they really uh, didn't prosper there. But there was a team in the league in Newark which wasn't doing well. Abe bought the franchise, merged the two franchises. They moved to Newark as the Eagles. And, you know, as they say, the rest was history. They had ex- after starting out as a mediocre team, they got really good. Mm-hmm. They won the Negro National League in '46 and the World Series that same year. Mm-hmm. They, they had a, I think they had a good relationship. Um, well, they had a good relationship, and, and on the business side, they seemed to agree on almost everything. They, the leagues, in fact, should be run better, and they divide and they divided up their. Um, responsibilities wisely. Abe had absolutely no interest in administration. His idea 
of being a good owner was to go on road trips with mm-hmm. the team, mm-hmm. keep an eye on them, drink beer with them, play cards with them. And while he was out there, scout some good players, and make trades, hang over his manager's shoulder to give him probably unsolicited advice. Everything a good owner should do. Um, <laughs> Effa um, didn't go on a road trip. She went on one and said, I felt so uncomfortable, and the players did too. I clearly was cramping their style. (laughs) So I stopped going on the bus. (laughs) And she would set the schedule. She would negotiate contracts, sell advertising, negotiate contracts. uh, And also she did, uh, they were both active in in, in league affairs. Abe was the league treasurer for many years. This is a guy who had no interest in administration. Well, Effa did. And Abe was the treasurer, and she was the person doing the job of the treasurer. So she really was de facto the treasurer of the Negro National League for probably about 10 years. Hmm. And, and of course, they went to league meetings, and each team, no matter how many owners you had, each team only had one vote. There's not there's not a sign anywhere in the newspaper stories, in our interviews, in their correspondence, in the Eagle Files, that they didn't agree on things and have their ducks in line mm-hmm. when they went into the meetings. Um, you it's, know, uh, Jim, it's talk, an interesting relationship. What we know of it. Yeah, talk, talk to me. Talk to me about the Negro Leagues themselves, the Negro National League, the Negro American League, and this was basically I. Th- think the second go for a Negro National League. Talk about the structure of the league. Where did the teams play, the schedule, barnstorming? How did it all work? Talk a little bit about the structure of the Negro National League at that time. Yes, uh, this Negro National League was the second one. The first one had been founded in Kansas City in 1920, but it had gone out of business during the Depression in '32. And um, the second Negro National League was opened up in 1933. The Eagles joined it in 35. It was a primarily, excuse me, primarily an Eastern Seaboard team. There were team. There was a team in Chicago, but generally you're talking about New York City, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Washington, Baltimore. Franchises moved around to some extent, but it was mostly an Eastern. oriented league. There are usually six teams in the league. When I say usually, uh, the Negro League structure was a bit rickety. Um, but you are talking about uh, a bunch of owners and players, of course, who were locked out of organized baseball, as it was known, white organized baseball, as I now call it. They um, had to put their own deal together without a lot of capital. Very few of the teams had to, could afford to build their own ballparks. White banks were going to lend the money to build a ballpark. So they generally rented parks. Um, the fortunate ones rented good quality minor league parks. Uh, the Eagles played in Rupert Stadium in Newark where the New York Bears played. Or they played in major league parks when they can get them. But the problem is you had to get the park when the tenant, when the host team was on the road. Mm-hmm. And if you got rained out, it wasn't like you could schedule a doubleheader the next day. You had to fish around and try to mm. uh, get your date in some other time. 
And uh, the teams played about three games a week, league games a week. And the rest of the time, they would go, as you say, barnstorming. They would take off on these extended road trips and play other Negro League teams. They, they Teams would go together and go and play in city after city after city. Or they would go and play um, white sometimes black, lower-level black teams or white semi-pro teams um, in the host, in the other teams' cities and travel around. And travel traveling on the bus is a main theme of the memories of Negro leaguers who bothered to record them or who were interviewed. Mm. It, was, it was hard. Mm-hmm. You'd play, you'd, you'd go and go and go between games. And yeah, yeah. They they became, but that's, but that's the way you could make money. Mm-hmm. The, the the Eagles became, as again you said earlier, one of the most powerful teams in Negro League history. So, how unique a character was Effa in the Negro Leagues and baseball as a whole? How unique was Effa? She was completely unique. At the time, right. <laughs> if I understood your question correctly, yeah, I mean, she there was, was she was she was it. She was the only woman in the game at the time. I think she was the only woman at the game in the game at the time. There'd been some. There'd been a couple of women who were owners of. There was at least one woman, Helen Britton, who was, who was owner of the St. Louis Cardinals. A few decades before, but that was because her husband died and left it to her. Uh, and she didn't appear to have any um, uh, any influence or any interest in the operations of the, of the game or the league. Yeah, Effa was it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did all this stuff. I mean, she just didn't sit around. She was extremely... Someone asked me once, if I had to, a single word to describe her, and I thought about it for about an instant, I said, well, aggressive. I said, if she was in 1934, she was a major person in organizing a boycott of white-owned department stores in Harlem that wouldn't hire black sales clerks. Mm-hmm. And she was became, as usual, the secretary of the group and occasionally got on the picket line and... She just I said, if you if you had known that about her in 1934, you'd know exactly what kind of baseball administrator she'd have been in the years after that. She mm. was always out front mm. as much as she could be. Now, there's some, you know, there's some gender discrimination. There's some sexism in her career, but uh, she did not uh, let it get her down. She she had to have been a pretty smart person i mean she was operating the business side of the team like you said abe was the treasurer of the league but she really did all of the work she was a tough owner wasn't she yes she uh she didn't back down she didn't win all her arguments but Mm -hmm. uh she didn't back down Mm -hmm. She, she negotiated contracts with the players and um, in the spring, you know, and uh, she would rarely give in. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was always a battle over the dollars. They had what they thought she was worth. And 
one of the pitchers wanted more money one year, and she said, "You seem to have forgotten we gave you an unsolicited raise in the last in the middle of last season, after which you only." won two games and you gave up a lot of runs and as far as i'm concerned you weren't you you weren't good the other pitchers were worse so you're not getting a raise um that is um that is uh half a negotiation well well she had to pay attention to the bottom line and the bottom line usually meant a financial loss i mean Negro league teams weren't very profitable if profitable at all so where did the owners get their money, and how did they sustain the operations of a team, and how did the Manleys do it as well? Well, um, most of them, uh, most of them had other sources of income, and a lot of them, in the least in the second Negro National League, a lot of them were numbers bankers. Abe was retired. Gus Greenlee in Pittsburgh uh, was not retired. Uh, Rufus Jackson, who was a one of the, uh, not the primary owner, but one of the owners of the Homestead Grays was the head of um, Black Numbers in Homestead, which is a suburb of of uh, Pittsburgh. So um, there were other sources of income. Now, the Eagles did make some money. Um, Newark was a good, Newark was a good baseball town. I mean, you had the Bears, which is basically one of the Yankees' two top farm teams mm-hmm. right across the river from New York. And the Eagles were good. They uh, had the same a misfortune of being in the same league as the Homestead Grays, who almost always won the pennant. But the Eagles were always right on their tail till they finally passed them there after World War II. Um, so mm-hmm. they were um, they made they made money during the war. World War II right, was a right. real boon for the Negro Leagues. Yeah, you you talk about that in great detail in yeah. your book. But before we but but before World War II, it seemed like it was always a struggle. And Effa and Abe always faced challenges when it came to payroll, to paying taxes, how she had to let go of employees. What was owning a team like? And being a woman, did that make it any more difficult for Effa? Well, I think you had to work at it pretty hard you had to you had to you had to work to put a schedule together because not only was there the league schedule which was subject to rainouts which were can could be really disruptive um, you had to put together this whole barnstorming schedule and of course everybody there was a constant roster of teams you could go and play and once you went to a town and did well, you were likely to go back again the next year or even maybe back that same season. And, uh, but, but there was no overall, except for the league schedule, you had to make your own schedule. You had to write a lot of letters. You had to make a lot of phone calls. You had to, to uh, strike up a lot of relationships with mm. owners of, uh, or managers of semi-pro teams and, um, Make sure you could get from one place to another in time. Nothing like scheduling a game and getting their bus gets there late. You know, then you don't make, then no one makes any money, particularly you, because you've driven to there for nothing. And that did happen sometimes, not very often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you and you and you're constantly well on the road. I mean, a lot of a lot of these towns were mostly mostly uh white population but they would 
you know, it was a good game, so people would come and see it. But back in your um, home city, you'd have to work to, you know, gin things up with the African-American fans who were your basic source of income. And you had to do a lot. (laughs) 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 And you didn't have very many. The front offices were very small. Effa had a secretary and a publicist who was a... uh, who's either a law student or a lawyer, he became mm-hmm. a lawyer, mm-hmm. who, who wrote PR for them. And that was and, and they had a traveling secretary for some years who was not there. He was out on the road with the team. And that was it. Mm. So she had to be kind of everything. Yeah, except, she had, she know, had to... Except the uh, field manager. <laughs> yeah, she had to do it all. And like we yeah. said earlier, she was pretty tough, but she was fair, too. I mean, we said when it came to contract negotiations, she was tough. You told the story. Um, But she also cared about her players, her current players and her former players. She would loan them money in times of need. She had a good heart, didn't she? She did. Um, She was strict. Uh, One of the players who lived in Newark, I interviewed Jim Walker, said, you know, she would she would inspect your clothing. She, you had to dress. If you were going to represent the Eagles walking around in Newark, you'd have to have your shoes shined. You had to look good. And she would get on you if you didn't. And so, so she was she was strict, but she also helped players. There was a a player, well, a player's wife. This is a guy from North Carolina, I believe wrote Effa saying, my husband hasn't been sending me any money from his paychecks. And Effa writes back and says, well, that's terrible. And from now on, I will make sure that he sends some money home to you every time he gets mm. paid. I presume she was going to withhold the money and send it herself. I don't really know <laughs> that. But that would be her style to make sure it got done. And in the meantime, here's a money order for $10 for you and your child which was not an insignificant amount of money in around 1940. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, she had um, she had that side to her. Mm-hmm. Not the side she would the first not the first side she would present to the public, but it was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing she definitely understood and knew how important it was was community involvement. She made the Eagles be a part of the community in so many ways. She knew the importance of staging promotions and special events at Rupert Stadium. She also understood the importance of being a part of the community during the off-season. So talk about that. Why was it important? And what were some of the things that Effa had the team do to be a part of the community? Well, I think she saw. I think she thought it was important, you know, toward the team's reputation. But if you go back, as I said, uh, 1934, the Citizens Committee uh, for Fair Play in Harlem, she already believed that. She just believed that pushing the right things for the African American, whatever African American community she lived in, was the right thing to do. She was um, a constant donor to. To causes camp summer camp funds and 
hospitals, but it really took off in Newark. There was a black hospital. Newark was obviously not legally segregated, but it was, you know, de facto segregated. And uh, there were no black uh, doctors or nurses at the city hospital. So a doctor who had been a um, a colleague of Booker T. Washington at the Tuskegee Institute opened up the Booker, Washington, Booker T. Washington Community Hospital in Newark for blacks. And the Eagles raised money for them every year. And the deal was, that was uh, publicity was, this is the only hospital in, in Newark that will allow black nurses and black training for medical people, and you, the fans, should come to the game and should give money and support it. She had stop lynching days where she sold stop lynching buttons to for to promote uh, pressure on Congress to pass anti-lynching laws. Uh, I think in 1946, there was a quote-unquote race riot in Columbia, Tennessee, where most of the rioters, of course, were white, and most of the people who got arrested were black. Uh, you can imagine how that went. Yeah. And uh, they, a Thurgood Marshall, who was then a lawyer, not yet a, obviously a Supreme Court justice, led a legal team down there to very successfully uh, defend these these uh, Columbia residents. And Ethel raised 500 bucks to uh, to contribute to the financing of this legal effort. So she's just always in there. During a the war, she sold war bonds uh, for, at the ballpark or separately on her own effort, on her own. She was always in there pitching for the mm-hmm. right things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I would think is the right things anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other interesting things, and you talk about many of them in your book, was, this is a weird one to me. She wasn't a fan of white folk being involved in the operations of Negro League teams. And yet she was, you know, she was white folk. I mean, talk about that. Why Why didn't she like um, white folk being, being a part of the Negro Leagues? Because some of the teams were owned by white men. Absolutely. Very, some very successful ones, uh, too. Um, it was a matter of it was a matter of money and control. I don't think I I certainly don't think that she was uh, um, being hypocritical hypocritical about race relations. Um, in the case of in the case of the white the feuds with the whites in baseball, it was a matter of control because the Negro League teams didn't have their own stadiums. They were often sort of at the mercy of what were called booking agents, which were guys who had rounded up commitments from the owners of ballparks in a metropolitan, usually in a metropolitan area, New York, Philadelphia, um, for example, the ones that, the ones that count here. And you could schedule a game at their park, but they would take a cut of the gate receipts and they were invariably, not always, but they were invariably white guys, white businessmen. And in 1940, uh, 
And the Negro League had started a very what turned out to be a very successful run in Yankee Stadium in the mid thirties. And a uh, one of the uh, owners of the Philadelphia Stars in the Negro National League, Eddie Gottlieb, who's familiar to basketball fans, he's a mm-hmm. he's a he was a member of the he's a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame as a businessman, was their agent and he took I don't know, I guess ten percent of the of the gate as his fee, and there were some other there were some other dissatisfactions. There were sort of two cliques. There were the New York-based teams, which included the Eagles, um, and there were the rest of the other teams. Well, there were only six teams, and there were three teams in each clique. So, the, the, when it was showdown time came, they were uh, evenly matched. And it was a matter of jawboning something out of the other side. And the Eagles, the Eagles, and the New York, two New York teams wanted to get the booking aid, booking business out of Gottlieb's hands and into um, their hands. And there was a big fight at the uh, winter meeting in February of 1940 about this. And they were in they were in Gottlieb's offices in Philadelphia behind closed doors, but then the newspaper men were out in the lobby and they didn't have to plead to get in behind the door because they, people were shouting so loud you could hear almost everything that was mm. being said, <laughs> and uh, which made for a good story for them. And um, Effa led the charge, which uh, was partially successful. Gottlieb uh, remained the booking agent, but he cut his uh, commission substantially, which meant more money for the teams who played in those games. So I guess it was successful, but um, yes, she said she was overheard saying something like this, this league should be run by the coloreds for the coloreds. Mm. This is a, this is a big race matter and you are giving money away to this white guy. Now this, this is a very knowledgeable, astute, and successful white guy who actually, who actually, I have to say, in the long run, did a lot of good for the Negro Leagues, getting them into the Yankee Stadium for reduced prices, uh, reduced fees, and all, promoting their games. But the, the the touch point was the, you know, who's who's got the money and who's got the control. Well, she thought. And, and Abe must have thought, because as I said, I can never find any evidence that they didn't go into these meetings united. Abe must have agreed with her. You know, you hit another really important note in the very first pages of your book, which was this. Not only was Effa a woman, not only was Effa trying to make it in a man's world, she was, <laughs> I guess, a black woman trying to make it in baseball and to motivate white men into desegregating the game. She tried to invite herself to a meeting. Talk about that, the obstacles she had to clear from not only a woman's point of view, but from a black woman's point of view. And by the way, how did her fellow black owners of Negro League baseball teams, all men, accept or not accept her? Well, um, the first question, um, she told the story two or three times when after Jackie Robinson signed an integration 
began and the Negro Leagues fans started to kind of turn their full-fledged attention toward the toward the major leagues and Negro League attendance started to slump. The leagues were, um, even if you were in favor of integration, and I think that as a general principle, she was, you know, you had an investment here. You had to protect somehow. And um, so the owners and the league presidents tried various ideas to get um, taken in somehow by organized baseball, which never happened. Um, she said she went to Washington, D.C., where the minor leagues were meeting, and tried to get an audience with George Troutman, who was the longtime president of the minor leagues, all the minor leagues. And she went un, unannounced to the hotel and asked to see Troutman and waited and waited and waited. And finally, he sent his wife down to visit with her. <laughs> so she's kind of she's kind of got the gender brush off and she's got the racial brush off in one fell swoop. And that was, uh, needless to say, an unsuccessful venture. Mm hmm. And, and in terms of dealing, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go. I was going to say. And then what about? What about um, did her fellow black owners, all men, accept or not accept her? They accepted her to an extent. Uh, they accepted her because she was good. They, they, she got league assignments like setting up Army-Navy relief uh, benefit games uh, during the war. And at one point, uh, the East team, the Negro National League, was the East, and the Negro American League was the West in the annual East-West All-Star Game. They sent her to Chicago, where the game was played at Comiskey Park every year, to kind of monitor the finances because the National League was beginning to think they were getting a little shorted on the uh, on the take of the hmm. proceeds. Hmm. Um, so, so yes, they would they would give her stuff to do important stuff to do. Um, and they recognized that the Eagles were a well-run team. And, you know, that was good for them too, because if you're going to play, if you're going to go to the other, some other team and play and take 40%, let's say of the gate receipts, you want those gate receipts to be good. And the Eagles drew well. So that's another reason to, to like her as a fellow, uh, owner. Um, but she was never, other than, I guess, by her husband and a couple of others, she was never really accepted into the, the brotherhood. How could she be? Mm. At the at that contentious 1940 meeting, she got she called um, the other owners who she she accused the other owners of kowtowing to White Scott Lieb and called them handkerchief heads, which is a term you never hear anymore. <laughs> but it has something to do with that kerchief that Aunt Jemima-type house slaves wore. She oh called them. She, she called these leading men of their racial city's racial communities Uncle Toms, in other words. Mm. And the most hot-headed of them all, uh, Cumberland Posey of the Homestead Greys, stalked out of the meeting, and as he went by, Abe, he says, I'll be back when you can take your wife home where she belongs. Mm. Well, <laughs> but they made up. 
they, 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 they knew that their teams both made money for themselves and each other. So she and Cumberland made up that, mm -hmm. you know, it was a, it was a hot, it was a hot afternoon in Philadelphia, even, even in February. <laughs> but she, she was somewhat contentious, um, when it came to the structure of the Negro Leagues, um, she thought her fellow owners, you know, guys like Cumberland Posey and Gus Greenlee, they were too set in their ways and didn't have the vision to make the leagues better. And by this, I mean, she wanted something more in line with Major League Baseball. She wanted a league president or a commissioner, a balanced schedule. She wanted rosters where players could only appear for the team they had signed a contract with in league scheduled games. Talk about her vision and, you know, and how she thought the leagues should be run. All of those things you mentioned were deficiencies in the Negro leagues at one time or another, or in some cases all the time. The Negro leagues never had a commissioner. They never had a Kennesaw Mountain Landis or Bud Selig or anyone like that. Uh, and the two leagues got along by basically negotiating these uh, non-proliferation agreements. Don't don't raid our rosters. We won't raid your rosters. You know, and all of that. Everybody everybody had to be uh, take their swear to obey and everything, which they always didn't. Sometimes didn't. Then the leagues had commissioners at some times, but in almost every time they turned out to be very estimable men who never were really given any power. And as soon as they started to make decisions that favored one owner or the other, the owner who wasn't favored would round up his buddies and put pressure on them and eventually get them voted out of office. Uh, it was um, the 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 power structure really rested with the owners, and of course, doesn't matter. Uh, however, in favor of a good league you are, you're also running a team, and you've got a financial stake in it. And if you have to make a choice uh, between the league and your team, frequently you will choose your team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So administration, high level administration was not good. The Eagles, Abe, Abe and Effa, that is, either proposed or or were in favor of a no less than six outsiders, uh, newspaper editors, judges, uh, civil rights leaders, to be president of the NNL or commissioner of the whole business. And while they sometimes had support, they never had enough and it never happened. Mm. which left the leagues at a real disadvantage when push came to shove in the late 40s because mm -hmm. they could not put up a united front and might have somehow got them brought into organized baseball because integration in the long run, it took a while, was good for the players. Right. You know, look at all the Negro League stars, Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella, Monty Irvin, mm -hmm. and Garen, who went from the Negro Leagues, who went from the Negro Leagues, but the owners never came after them, never never were allowed in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's move to the Eagles and their on-field performance. They were always a good team, but never won. They had great players. They had Ray Dandridge and Monty Irvin and Larry, no, you know, Larry Doby, to name a few. 
Several times they came close to winning it all, but just came up short. That is until 1946. The Eagles won the National League Championship, the Negro Leagues Championship, the, the, the Negro National League Championship that year. They dominated it, and then they beat the Kansas City Monarchs in the championship. Talk about that year and how satisfying it finally was for the Manleys to, to win the championship. I often think about the Eagles as the, the Cleveland Indians of the 50s. They had a really good team. They even won the pennant one year, but no matter how good they were, the Yankees were always better, <laughs> almost always better. And I guess and that was the way it was. And the Yankees, the, yeah. the Eagles, were the home, were Cumberland Posey's Homestead Grays, who right. won eight consecutive wow. <laughs> National League pennants uh, up through 1945. And the Eagles, well, A was a good scout. He was building a good team, and he had, he had, a, he had a, way, a, a method of operation that during the war turned out to be uh, disadvantageous, not, uh, not his fault. He liked good young players. He liked to develop young players. He wasn't that interested in picking up, you know, veteran cast-offs from other teams and trying to squeeze a couple more years out of them. He signed Irvin, uh, he signed Dobie, Max Manning. All of these guys were out of college. Um, and then the war came and they all got drafted. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were draft age. And so the Eagles slumped during the war a bit. I didn't, mm-hmm. didn't go to pieces, but they, they lost their momentum that they'd been gathering in the late 30s and early 40s. And then all these guys came back. In 46, you had, I think, three eventual Hall of Famers in a starting lineup. Leon Day, who threw a no-hitter on opening day in 1946. Ehrman and Dobie. And oh, they had a really good team. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. just, they won both. The, the, the league had a split season schedule kind of to keep fans interested, you know. Well, somebody won the first half of the season, and now we'll see who wins the second half of the season, and they'll have a playoff, which will spice things up even more before the World Series. Well, there was no playoff. The Eagles ran away with both halves of the season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were, they were a, a, an outstanding team that year. It was, and it was, as were the Monarchs. It was a tough World Series. Yeah, it won tough seven was, games. Tell us about it. Well, they they went back and forth and back and forth, and the Eagles are ahead there at the end of the last game, and the you know, Monarchs get a couple guys on base, and Herb Sewell, their third baseman, is at bat. And Effa, she, she wrote a book. She co-wrote a book with uh, a black sports writer, um, Way before mine, I have to say. <laughs> and uh, she's, she says, I'm sitting there and I'm so nervous I can't stand to look. I close my eyes and Sewell <laughs> pops it up on the infield and somebody catches it and we're the champions. So it was a big deal to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Her team finally won. And, yeah. and, and when you look back at it, it was also somewhat bittersweet because – that was really the last year the Negro Leagues were on their own because Branch Rickey was set to integrate baseball. And, you know, integration had always been a goal, but it was also, like I said, 
bittersweet. And while Effa had to be happy to see Negro League players finally getting a shot, she wasn't all that happy with the way Branch Rickey went about securing the services of players from the Negro Leagues. So tell us, was it bittersweet to finally integrate the majors, which signal the demise of the Negro Leagues? And then talk about how Branch Rickey went about plucking players. Ricky, um, sort of under the radar, I guess. People think it is. I guess it was. Got interested in a... a uh, upstart black league in 45 called the United States League and funded it to some extent and had a, sponsored a team, uh, the Brown Dodgers, who played in Ebbets Field when the Dodgers, Dodgers, Dodgers were away. And he used this as a way to scout players. Because, hey, I need players for the Brown Dodgers. So, and by the way, scouts, Clyde McCullough, who scouted Robinson, while you're at it, see if this guy could play for us. <laughs> Keep it a secret. <laughs> well, they did. <laughs> he signed in 46. He signed uh, Jackie Robinson, who, who played to the Montreal um, farm team. He signed Don Newcomb, who had been an Eagle. He signed Roy Campanella, who played for the Nashua New Hampshire farm team. He signed, signed John Wright, who had been a homestead gray, although I think he had not gotten back to the team after his military service, so he didn't exactly swipe him off the gray's roster. But at any rate, he didn't pay for any of them. And all of a sudden, I mean, I gather that the progressive, smart Negro League owners, which would include Ethel Manley and Abe Manley, thought, well, yes, they're going to sign our players, but they will pay us for them. And we'll make some money. This is not, of course, that's the way the organized baseball minor leagues operated before the farm system. You developed a good player, you sold them up the line, and you had some dough, and you go find another player and develop them. But all of a sudden, your best guys are going, and you're not getting anything. And this uh, sounded the alarm to a great extent. She was very angry at Ricky. She lost Newcomb, you know. Mm -hmm. Robinson mm -hmm. got all the attention, but she lost Newcomb the uh, same way. And they raised hell. And Ricky finally started paying for contracts, you know, um, as did the other owners. And, of course, in 1947, Abe comes to their office one day in Newark and said, uh, Bill Beck is going to give you a call. Oh, Bill Beck was, of course, the owner of the Cleveland Indians in those days. And Beck calls and said, um, I'd like to buy the contract for Larry Doby. This is around July, early July, 1947. So Beck is paying. Beck, Beck wants players. Doby integrated the American League because Robbie had the National League. Mm -hmm. but, but Beck will pay for him. And after his effort, he says, I'll give you $10,000 for his contract, which was, you know, by Negro League financial standards, was a pretty good piece of change. Mm -hmm. But Effa says, you know, Mr. Vick, if he was white, this guy's really good. If he was white, you'd pay $100,000 as a free agent. He says, well, yeah, tell you what, if he stays on the roster, I'll give you 5000 more. Well, he stayed on the roster. Mm. So the Eagles got 15000 which was a, a king's ransom 
I guess by their standards, but a bargain by Bill Veck's standards because Dovey turned out to be a great player and went to Hall of Fame and everything else. So they did start to sell off players, but I mean, the fans just deserted the, deserted the leagues. And went, mm-hmm. you know, hey, Robinson's playing in Brooklyn. You know, Brooklyn played, what, 70, let's not count double headers, 77 games at Ebbets Field, 11 games at the Polo Grounds, 11 games at Connie Mack Stadium in Philadelphia. The Eagles were surrounded by Jackie Robinson. Mm. Those were driving distances. If you really wanted to see a major league ball game with a black guy in it, those easy driving distances from Newark. Mm-hmm. Their their attendance in '47 dropped 50 percent. Wow! And, the, and profits turned into losses. And the fans just, hey, this is a great thing. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to mm-hmm. go see it. Well, mm-hmm. it was a great thing, and they should go see it. But you know, you only have so much money to buy tickets with, so they stopped going to the Negro League games. Which, of course, had to be somewhat bittersweet. Very, very bittersweet. She was, she was, she was bitter. She was bitter. She thought Ricky just took terrible advantage of him. He did. Mm-hmm. You know, he he gets a lot of credit. He deserves a lot of credit. He took a lot of, a lot of guff mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. his other owners and all of that for what he did. And, sure. Uh, but um, and he was the first, I think, for Bill Veck, who then integrated the Indians with Dobie and Satchel Page and Horace Stoneham, who doesn't give half the credit he should get at the Giants. When right out, I mean, uh, when Bobby Thompson hit his home run there at the end of '51 to win the pennant for the Giants, there were three blacks in the starting lineup for the for the Giants. Mm. Mm. That's in 1951. Right. So so they get a lot of credit, but of course. The the overall result was the death of the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. Well, just be, one of those things, I guess. We can say it's just one of those things, but if you were holding the mortgage at the time, you probably felt differently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it had to be tough. I mean, here they win it in '46, and just a few more years later, the team is gone. How tough was that on the Manleys and the Newark community? Well, Abe didn't want to sell after the 48 season. I mean, they lost money in 47. They lost money in 48. Um, Effa, ever the business part of the combo, convinced Abe they should sell. And there was a family uh, from Memphis. Uh, the guys were named Martin. John John Martin was the owner that had moved to Chicago, owned the team in Chicago, was the president of the Negro American League. He had a brother, B.B. Martin, who still lived in Memphis, who was a part owner of the American League team in Memphis, and he put together a group that bought the Eagles um, from the Manleys. And since it was already a team in Memphis, they moved them to Houston, and they lasted for a few more years, but not... Not much longer. I mean, the, the life was by the early to mid fifties. The, the real life had drained out of the Negro leagues. The best players were now pretty welcome in organized baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd be signed. They'd go to the minor leagues. They if they were good. They'd go to the major leagues, and the Negro leagues were pushed off to the side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And shortly after that, well, a couple years after that, Abe passed away, and Effa 
moved out to the West Coast. And without getting into the greatest of detail, without getting into, you know, a lot of minutiae, what was life like for Effa after the Eagles, after the Negro Leagues? And what was her involvement, if any, with baseball? Um, she moved back to Philadelphia uh, from Tulsa House in Newark, moved to Philadelphia where her family lived. She stayed there a few years where she always liked music. I mean, she was friends with, uh, she was friends with um, black entertainers, Maud Mills, Andy Razaf, who was a black songwriter, uh, Lena Horne, uh, Ubi Blake, um, and she ran a record store <laughs> in Philadelphia. Wow. <laughs> which, is, which is just kind of, it's just a consignment of sounds kind of strange. Yeah. Until you think about how much she loved entertainment. But she gave that up. She moved to L.A. She bought a, she bought a little a four-unit bungalow, a cottage uh, unit uh, place in L.A. in the Silver Lake District, which is now quite uh, in demand. And she wanted to get her mother and her sister to move out, but they didn't want to do it. So she rented, she lived in one of the units and rented the other three and, you know, supported herself and got in and she stayed interested in baseball. There were a lot of, um, of, uh, you know, baseball people, black and white by then and who, on the West coast. And she got, she was close friends with Chet Brewer, who had been a pitcher for the Monarchs, who was running a youth baseball program in LA and Danny Goodman, who was the concessions manager for the Dodgers. She hated the Dodgers when Ricky was around, but now she likes the Dodgers because, you know, they're okay. They're in LA. and <laughs> Ricky's long gone. And Danny Goodman, who'd been a a uh, functionary in Newark with the Bears uh, was now the concessions manager for the Dodgers. So she's got this thing, relationship going with Goodman where he's helping her, you know, locate places to give money to or give attention to. And she's, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, because she's getting older, she's active in um the affairs of the black community and, and she seems to be doing just fine and then she gets rediscovered and she's interviewed by um, Don Rogerson who wrote the one of the early books Invisible Man about black baseball she's interviewed by Jim Murray of the LA Times she's interviewed by C.C. Johnson Spink who had succeeded his uncle Taylor Spink as the editor and publisher of the Sporting News and she starts first. First, she starts to talk about, you know, answer their questions about what the Negro League was like, and then she starts to talk about, let's have more Negro Leaguers in the Hall of Fame. And she's not chilling her for herself. Hmm. Hmm. Johnson makes it clear in his column, based on his interview with her, she never, she never, she gave me a long list of people who should be in the Hall, and she never mentioned herself. Hmm. But she's, she's hot that. There hasn't been more attention by the hall to black players. And, of course, not only because of her efforts, but partially because of her efforts, then there was. And then there, sort of at the end in 2006, she gets voted in, too. Wow. <laughs> Which I think is only uh, fair and deserving, given mm -hmm. all the work mm -hmm. she did. 
<laughs> Absolutely. When doing your research on EFA, what surprised you most? Well, the the, the complete the, the complete or at least partial Caucasian ancestry surprised me a lot. <laughs> but as I said, we're yeah. still working on that. Yeah. Um, I think that um, the effort it took, and I, you know, when my wife popped that to me at the stoplight, I knew almost nothing about the Negro Leagues. I grew up in northern Indiana within the ambit of the Chicago Cubs, and Ernie Banks was my favorite player, and I knew he had played for the Kansas City Monarchs, but I, don't, I thought maybe that's some kind of semi-pro team. I don't know about <laughs> the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, well, it turned out they were a little more than that. And that was all That was all new to uh, The whole business about the Negro Leagues was new to me. I mean, when I got Peterson's book, but everybody said, well, you're going to start anywhere, read Bob Peterson's book, because he broke ground. Well, and a lot of it, you know, we found other facts. Some of the things in these early books are not necessarily completely true. They're not made up, but they've been supplanted by further research. Mm -hmm. And that's true of Peterson's book, but it's still, you know, really, it's the best place to start because he caught these guys in the 60s when they were still alive and loved to talk about what they're doing and um, what they were doing. And so I learned so much, so mm -hmm. fast. Mm -hmm. about this whole business that operated, well, not exactly under the radar. I mean, you could find big city papers that would cover the Negro Leagues, uh, the mainstream papers, but not to the extent they got covered by the, by the black weekly sports writers. But there was so much, I mean, Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige before he became a rookie in his 40s with the Cleveland Indians and Oscar Charleston and Willie Wells and all of these guys who never got to play in the majors who were just outstanding and just opened up this amazing world to me, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I'm still living in. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> all these years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jim, your book, Queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley and the Newark Eagles, I really enjoyed it, and I want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to spend with me to talk about EFA and the Eagles. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I, I always enjoy people who are interested in the Negro Leagues. I mean, the, the tide is rising for them now, recognized as a, as a major league mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. uh, as of 2020 and and all of that, it's just a, it's a great, uh, it's never been a bad time for me to be a Negro League researcher, but it's probably better now than it's ever been. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to whatever you got coming next, if, if there is something next. And uh, again, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Well, thank you, Brent. You know, as we've discussed before, record keeping in the Negro Leagues was not exactly all-encompassing. There's just no way to know what the Eagles' record was every year. But certainly, their greatest single season was 1946, when they finally won the Negro League Championship in a thrilling seven-game series over 
the Kansas City Monarchs. It wasn't too long afterwards that the Negro Leagues folded because of the integration of its stars into the major leagues. What a weird time. Great, for sure, as the color line was finally crossed. That barrier was broken down. But bittersweet because great teams such as the Eagles, the Grays, the Monarchs, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, all gone. There was no longer a place for a separate league. That's the good thing that came out of all of this. I admit as well how surprised I was to learn that Effa was actually a white woman. She really was a pioneer in so many different areas on and off the field. A white woman who was brought up in a mixed-race home. A white woman who owned a team in the Negro Leagues. A woman who tried her hardest to integrate Major League Baseball. Her election into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2006 is certainly a phenomenal achievement and an incredible piece of recognition. And you can learn more about Effa by picking up a copy of the book, Queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley and the Newark Eagles from Roman and Littlefield Publishing. Head on over to sportsfh.com for a quick link if you are interested. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, the author of the book, James Overmeyer, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.